Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by Captain Jake Jordan. Jake has been a saltwater guide for his entire career, almost 60 years. While Jake guides for tarpon and false albacore, his passion is chasing billfish on the fly and teaching others to do the same. We've broken the interview into two parts. Please join us as Jake shares part one of his amazing story. But before we get to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a review and rating in the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. And a shout out to this episode's sponsor. This episode's sponsored by our friends at Norvice. Their motto is, tie better flies faster, and they produce the only vice that truly spins. To see for yourself, visit www.nor-vice.com. And be sure to check out their Facebook page to keep up with their weekly online tying events and special events like March Madness. Now, on to our interview. Well, Jake, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Well, thank you, sir. Nice to be here. I'm really looking forward to our conversation, and we have a tradition on the Articulate Fly. We always ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory. Sure. Well, uh, that's, that's pretty easy for me. I can, I, I can pick that up pretty good. I, uh, I was probably the one that stands out the most. Um, I had fished with my dad, my mom and dad, from the time I was old enough to remember anything. Um, but it was during World War II, and uh, I can remember uh, my dad had a rowboat down at the Jersey Shore. We lived in Pennsylvania. This was before we moved to New Jersey. We were in a little town called Summers Point. And I can always remember we used to go out on the falling tide, and Summers Point is across the bay from Ocean City, which it was the barrier island, and then there was an inlet with a bridge there. And we used to leave about two-thirds of the way through the falling tide, and we would row for two hours across the bay and out to the inlet. And when we got there, it was a slack tide, fish around the bridge, and then the, the current would wash us all the way back over to Summers Point. And we would drift. And this rowboat had two seats. And they had these little cushions that were like, uh, they called it K-Pock. They were life-saving cushions. But it was just like a, a little cushion with two handles on it. And you put that up against the gunnel of the boat and you lay in the seat. And we had a, we had a hand line. And you run that hand line down and on the bottom of it you had a, spreader bar with a sinker and two hooks and two live minnows. And you run that line through your toes and you cross your legs and sit there with your toes up there and you let that thing and you hold on to it with your hand. And you could just drift along and you could feel that sinker going bump, bump, bump along the bottom. And when a flounder picked it up, you just kick like you were kicking a football straight up in the air. That set the hook, you sat up, the hand line those flounder in, put them in the bottom of the boat, put it back down and do the same thing. That's That was the first thing that I remember was just drifting along out there, the most peaceful thing in the world, and thinking about what that sinker and what those baits were doing on the bottom and, and how we figured that out. My dad knew, I don't know. 
but that was the beginning. That's what I remember. It was just, you know, when I was four or five years old. Yeah, very neat. And so, you know, you grew up in Pennsylvania, but was it always salt water for you? Well, you know, I can remember as a real, real little kid, we did have a couple of ponds that we used to go down and catch sunfish and stuff on, but it, I, it was like before I remember, we, we actually had a, my dad worked in, in Westinghouse in Leicester, Pennsylvania. He ran a milling machine. He was building the big turbines for the aircraft carriers. So he used to send my mom, my sister and brother and I, to the Jersey Shore to our house down there. We spent the summers down there. My dad would come down every every weekend. He would work sub shifts during the week and even sometimes Saturday during the war. It was, it was pretty busy. But uh, it, then we would just go out and fish with him on the on the weekends. Like, you know, I just don't remember not fishing in the salt water. I you know, I I, I have photographs of a trip that he took me on when I was 10. Uh, he had a, a 31 foot lap strake, 1931 Johnson's brothers skiff with a, uh, with a model a engine. We used to run offshore about, I guess it was 80 miles out to the Wilmington Canyon and go fishing. When I was 10, I caught my first billfish. I caught a, I caught a little white marlin, about a 60-pound white marlin. And, uh, you know, that kind of excited me. That was the first billfish that I ever caught and, and fish that jumped. Um, I, I, got, I got into this thing that my passion all through my career was chasing big fish that jump. It doesn't matter if it's a rainbow trout or a tarpon or a sailfish or a marlin. I, I think that the uh, my passion comes from a couple of things, particularly when I'm fly fishing. One is actually feeling the strike and, and you know, casting the fly, but feeling the strike and setting the hook. The second one is hearing feeling the speed and power of fish, hearing the fish as it runs away with a clicker on that, on that reel. And the third thing is the optical thing of actually seeing the fish coming out of the water and jumping. And that, you know, my heart starts beating and it, it's never, never stopped. That passion has always been there. That's what steered me in this direction. Yeah. That's really neat. When did you know you wanted to become a charter captain? Oh God, that was, it was, it was kind of an accident, you know, in, in, in 19, uh, 1952, my dad put me on a, on a boat delivery for a rich guy from, uh, from New Jersey there. He had a house in Marathon in the Florida Keys and he had an old, it was in 52 and he had a 1949 Rybovich 37 footer, which was a the Rolls Royce of sport fishing boats then. And he wanted to boat in Florida for the winter. So my dad said, I'll take it down. So he took me out of school for, uh, for three weeks in October. And we left 
New Jersey, left the marina there um, beginning of October, pulled out the inlet. My dad always used to say, this is pretty easy to find Florida. You just grab the inlet and turn right. Keep America on your right. <laughs> so that's how we got there. We got to Florida and it took us, I think, to get all the way to the Keys was like 11 or 12 days. And he had planned on our bus tickets and plane tickets to, to come home were like in 22 days. So every day we would go out fishing on this guy's boat, stay in his house. And until, until our bus and trains were ready to go, we, we were just kind of there. So each day we'd go fishing and, and uh, this was the first time I ever saw a freezer on the boat. And had all these frozen clams. Well, up in New Jersey, we use clams and squid for bait for everything. So we go down there and we start drifting in Florida Bay right off behind Marathon. And uh, in 10 days, I have a logbook. I caught 37 species of fish using old bamboo rod and uh, Ocean City reel with uh, with cat gut leaders and everything and using uh, using clams for bait. I caught tarpon, permit and bonefish and bluefish and half a dozen kinds of snappers and groupers and cobia and redfish and pretty much everything that swims. And, and I, I never forgot that. So I, I didn't really think of it as being a guide. I mean, I worked around the marina when I was going to school in the summertime. I, I would work on commercial boats. I did commercial long lining for, for uh, swordfish and tuna. I, I did some some work on charter boats as a mate. I was a wash down boy at the dock there when people came in. And I, I did some oystering and I did a lot of clamming. So, I mean, I, I, I worked around the water and worked on boats. I never thought about being a guide. And then, you know, I got out of high school. I went, joined the military, and then I went on TDY, and I worked for the Coast and Geodetic Survey for three years traveling the world. And I worked out at Cape Canaveral, Florida, uh, doing some surveying for the missile range. And when I was done with that job, when they killed John Kennedy... I, uh, I wound up losing that job. I came back and I really didn't want to be in New Jersey. And I had a, you know, I had made some money, had some savings and I just packed my bags and loaded up my old pickup truck. And I always wanted to go back to the Florida Keys where that trip was always on my mind that I did with my dad. And I got there and I walked into a tackle shop talked to a guy there in Marathon, and I said, are you, uh, you know, anybody that's looking for an employee, I'm looking for a job. There was a guy standing in there, and he said, uh, can you drive a boat? And I said, yeah. I said, I threw up driving boats, but not a problem. He said, do you know how to fish? And I said, well, yeah, I'm, I'm a fisherman. He said, meet me at four o'clock. So I met this man. And uh, we got on his boat with a customer, and he had me throw the net and catch the mullet. We went out, and he showed me how to catch tarpon, a live mullet. 
We were in a 26-foot wooden center console inboard boat with a fighting chair, big, heavy, bent-butt rod with a big Ocean City reel. And uh, we caught three or four tarpon and put them on a stringer. That done, he paid me 25 bucks, and, and the angler took me 10. And, well, that's pretty good. Next, next day, we did two trips. And I did that for like a couple of days. And then he said, look, he said, this time you drive the boat. I'll work with the mate. So we did that for a couple of days. He said, you like to work? And I said, yeah. He said, well, if you want to work, he said, you can do two trips a day. You drive this boat. I have another boat. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll pay you $25 a trip. And you get to keep the tips. And I... Uh, you keep the boat up. I did that for two years. While I was doing that, I built a house and I got a, I wound up talking a guy into teaching me how to pull the flats and work on a flat boat. Went to work for this guy, I worked for two years, for two seasons. And uh, when, uh, while I was doing that, I was learning about fly fishing and really at that time I was studying, I was, Stu App had just written a book that was really good. Uh, Lefty was down there. there. There was a half a dozen guys that, you know, were my idol. I just, I was like a sponge. So I ran, a, I ran an offshore boat and I ran a flat boat and I, uh, 19, 1966, I was a full-time flats guy and uh, just did that for, did, I did fishing in the Keys. I did both the offshore fishing and the flat fishing and the wreck fishing. Tried to do it all, work from out of my house. And then in the, in the uh, early 70s, I was married by then, and I wound up getting involved in a resort in Marathon, and I decided that this was a perfect location to put a tackle shop. There was no, there was no really good fly shop anywhere except in Isla Morada. Billy Payton, George Hummel had the Worldwide Sportsman, but there was no fly shop anyplace else. So I opened inside of a lighthouse at a place called Ferro Blanco in Marathon. I opened a tackle shop that was called the World Class Angler. And we were both a full-blown tackle store and a, and a fly shop. And, you know, everybody in the Keys that fly fished had to go to one of those two shops. We were the only ones that sold any fly fishing tackle at all. And, uh, you know, I had to, I was the first G. Loomis dealer in the United States, first SDH real dealer in the United States. I had Cortland and George had Billy Pate reels and, and, and uh, Sage rods, and he had scientific angler lines. So you, if you came to go tarpon fishing, you had to go to one of us to get your stuff. I just, you know, my whole thing just started there and, we just 
my wife and I traveled and fished and traveled the world. I just got into, you know, the number one, I started doing fishing schools because I, I wanted to bring more people in and get more customers. I started a, as soon as we opened the shop, my first idea was for me to, you know, instead of me just making money, taking charters, if I have other guys taking charters and I can book them, I can make a little money off everybody. So we started a booking business and then we started a travel business and booking people to travel all over and that got us traveling. So we just, you know, we grew that thing and it just went on from there. It was a, you know, I didn't actually set out to be a guide, but when people ask me, what'd you do for a living? Or, you know, I've been a fishing guide my whole life, really. I you know, I didn't do anything else. I, I owned other businesses. I had boat yards. I owned a couple of boat yards. I owned a couple of fishing lodges, but, but I, there was never a time until, uh, until 2020 with the COVID that I didn't guide tarpon fishermen in April, May, and June. I mean, I was a, I've been a tarpon guide this coming year. I'll be, will will be my, uh, will be my 57th year guiding tarpon fishermen. Really interesting. I, you know, and starting down there and that's a really, you know, we were talking about this before we started recording, Jake, you know, it's such a phenomenal time cause it was kind of pre- you know, all the fly fishing gear and, you know, starting down there and there were only two shops that sold, uh, fly gear. You must've had some really interesting characters, uh, across your path. Can you tell us about a couple of them? Oh man. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, ha- having the, having a fly shop that, that, that was, that was actually located, you had to park a car and walk out a dock and come into a lighthouse to get into my fly shop. And my charter boat stocked out front. My dog's laying across the, across the front door. We had to step over them to get in there. And, and quite frankly, in those days, in the very beginning, before I actually had the shop, my guiding was 95% bait fishing for, you know, when the flats was, bonefish permit and tarpon and some snappers uh, and we would catch barracudas and sharks but really bonefish permit and tarpon was the key slam but when I started there was probably 12 guides in the Florida Keys there was less than 15 total and there wasn't enough fly fishermen in the 1960s that as a guy that you could have more than eight or 10 days a year where you had a fly fish. So you couldn't be a fly fishing guide. You had, you had to be a fishing guide. And then if you liked the fly fishing, then, then you would try to get people to do that. So it was in the seventies when it really took off. And before I could actually turn my business into into being just strictly fly fishing, uh, being a fly fishing guide only. I mean, I, I changed 
probably in the early 1970s where I, I just stopped using conventional gear and bait and stuff. And I, I didn't do that because I just wanted to fly fish. I did that because as a, as a guide, the fly fishermen were happy if they just went out there and they cast at the fish and they hooked one and you didn't have a bunch of bait on your boat. You didn't have a bunch of slime and, and the guys tipped better. And when, when you were taking guys, you know, bait fishing and catch them a half a dozen bonefish, they weren't happy. You know, you catch them a 10 pound bonefish. Oh, let's get another one. You know, and it was great, but the fly fishing thing just seemed people were more excited about what they were doing. And, and it was more interesting because everybody couldn't do it. You know, it was not, it was not an easy job. It took a long time to learn with the tackle that we were using and stuff. But I had people come in there, you know, I fished, I fished Frank Sinatra, uh, Don Johnson that did the Miami Vice was a customer of mine. Um, God, I, I, I fished Jimmy Carter. I fished, uh, um, George Bush Sr. So I, I, I fished some really, you know, heavyweight people, but, thing with me was that if you were out, you know, if, if, if you were in, if you were in the fly fishing industry in the 1970s and 1980s, the most important guys in the world were the guys that were the carpenters. And I was like right in the middle of that. So John Randolph that ran the Fly Fisherman Magazine, um, Leon Chandler, Brad Cortland, you know, uh, Don Green from Sage and Gary Loomis from G. Loomis. But really, I mean, just go through the industry and everybody that was anybody got their picture taken in the world-class angler at the lighthouse. I mean, you, you came there during tarpon season, you were going to run into a lot of people that were really, you know, big name fishing people. It, 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 I mean, I, you know, Lefty, Lefty was there all the time. You know, I had, I ran, I ran some fishing tournaments there in the early 1980s. The first, the first catch and release tarpon tournament ever was called the Tarpenware Classic. And uh, I had bumper stickers made that said, save, save our tarpon, stop kill tournament, the world-class angler. And, and I had people that were famous, famous, famous people come to me and say, hey, man, you can't stop killing tarpon, man. We got to kill them. We got to hang them up so that people are going to keep coming and booking we need, we need to be able to sell those mouths and keep killing them tarpon. I mean, nobody ever released the tarpon before the 19, late 1970s, ever. And we, we started it, and that by the early 1980s, it was nobody killed them anymore. And that, and that was, you know, that tarpenware classic, we used to advertise that as the first ever um, catch-and-release tarpon tournament. Fly fishing only. It was a cool deal. You had to we we designed a thing that you could slide over the lip of a tarpon's upper lip and stretch it, and it was made out of this bright colored tarpon wear material. And there was different colors 
as you went on, it was like one of those rainbow belts. And when you brought that back to the to the uh, to the dorsal fin, we had like we took from three different taxidermists measurements over over like two thousand tarpon, and we knew that if it was in the green, it was under fifty pounds. If it was between green and red, it was under seventy five. If it was if it was white. And it, it got bigger as the uh, and and the and the differences in inches would get shorter. You had to take that fish, bring him to the boat, put that thing on his lip, and measure him, and take a picture of him with a Polaroid camera with today's newspaper in the picture for the date. It was pretty crazy. That's really neat. And so when did you become obsessed? You know, you were fishing, you know, predominantly gear that started to change. When did you become obsessed with catching billfish on the fly? Well, you know, there was a couple of people down there. Billy Tate was doing it. Um, Helen, Helen and Doc Robinson were out of Key West and they were the first people actually to catch a sailfish on the fly. And I knew them. I talked to him about it, did some rigging, and I worked very hard in my little charter boat out there to, you know, we caught hundreds and hundreds of sailfish, but never got one on a fly rod, and I went out there and I worked and worked and worked, I think I caught my first one in the, in the, probably 1976, 77, but during that time after that then we were we were already in the travel business so i was fishing you know i i went to panama and i caught sailfish there i went to costa rica i caught i caught sailfish there um i i uh, had gone to mexico fished down in mexico and caught white marlin then i went to venezuela i spent probably between venezuela dominican republic Florida Keys, Mexico, probably uh, over a period from the 1970s, early 1970s to, um, I think it was 1970, no, 1981. I caught my first blue marlin on a fly, and that was in Venezuela. It was a ninety-pound fish, and that was the, that was after hooking a hundred and nineteen blue marlin and breaking off a hundred and nineteen blue marlin before I caught the first one, and it was probably a fifteen-year period, and we basically thought. It was pretty much not impossible, but very close to it. You had to be crazy, and it had to be super rich. Uh, you know, I did it not being a rich guy, just taking people fishing and working trips out where I would go someplace, and I'd take the fly rod. And, uh, you know, from, from the 1980 to... to uh, 
the early 1990s, I think I might have caught five altogether. And then all of a sudden, when my wife passed away, we started, I made a, made a conscious decision to go seriously chase billfish on a fly rod. And I, again, I didn't have the money to just go as an angler and chase them all over the world. But I had enough knowledge from catching, you know, I'd caught quite a few sailfish and I'd caught some white marlins and a couple of blue marlins that I had the ability to do it. So I started, I had, I had run a, a thing we called the bonefish school starting in the 1970s. And I ran that for 20 some years. And basically I would take people to Georgetown Exuma had a place down there and we, we would take groups of people and, and I, I had great casters and great fly tires, and knot tires, and everything. We'd bring people down, put, uh, one instructor for four students and one, one guide for every two students. And we would bring people for a week. And when they come down there, everybody would catch a dozen bonefish on fly. The secret of running a school is that everybody has to catch fish or, you know, you can teach everybody as, as much as you want to teach them, but if they don't catch a fish, you still might lose them. They might not become fishermen, but we always, I always felt that you need to catch people fish. So my idea was after running these schools, I started the school so I could sell tackle out of my shop and sell fishing trips. Well, it worked good for me, so I decided that I was going to do this thing I called the sailfish school. And I was taking small groups of people, and I worked out deals in different countries where I had experienced really good fishing. And and I would, I would advertise and bring one or two or three or four anglers to a place for a period of time and call it a school. They would pay for everything. I'd get down there and I would get to fish some and, and, and get to teach them everything that I knew. Um, in about, I guess, 1980, in the mid-80s, um, it got where the, uh, the schools were, were doing okay. We were catching some fish and stuff. Um, I wound up taking a job in Costa Rica. A lodge had closed down and they hired me to get down there and reopen this lodge. So I went and I stayed there for a period of uh, six months at a contract. And every day when the siesta time came, we would work from dawn until noon and then everybody would eat their lunch and then go, go take a siesta. And, and in those days, it was so hot, nobody would come out in the afternoon. You just fish, you just work the mornings. So as soon as we ate lunch, we would jump in a boat, go offshore and pull teasers. And I had, when I went down there, I took my tarpon reels and my tarpon rods and my fly line, fly tire materials and stuff. We would, we would pull teasers. And when a fish would pop up, 
I had my mate and me, and one of them cast fly, and uh, tried to hook him and fight him and catch the fish. I, I hooked, in six months, I hooked 212 billfish, and I caught 11 of them. And of those 11 fish that we caught, one was a striped marlin, and the rest were sailfish. So we landed. We had broken off some blacks and some blues. But but I broke every reel I had and every rod that I had, all the fly lines and all the leader materials, and the hooks were opening up. And We lost fish in every possible way, and I realized one thing, that you can catch these fish on a fly, but the equipment that we have, the tarpon, is no good for chasing billfish. So when I came back to the States, I started working with different people. I worked with Gary Loomis on green, designing bigger, stronger rods with four grips on them. Um, I started working with Steve Abel on some reels and stuff, but basically the, the guy that I got hooked up with was a guy by the name of Jack Charleston. Jack was an engineer that built a reel that was just so far superior to everybody else. And uh, he didn't really know how good it was, but it was way overbuilt. And I worked with him for a while using his reels. Worked with guys developing connections. Uh, I, fished, I fished with a captain by the name of Ron Hamlet. who was one of the more famous of the big game fishermen. He invented the wind-on leaders, and he and I worked together and developed connections for fly lines and designed basically a, a way to build a system where you can take your fly lines and your leaders and your backing and put everything together with no knots. It's just, it's basically is, is a, is a power for loop to loop stuff and uh, using background. And that system is used today by pretty much everybody in the world when they put their stuff together I worked with uh, with Rio uh, when when uh, Jim Vincent first opened it. I went to him and had hired a scientist named Marlon Roosh and went to Marlon and basically he worked with me designing a line that eventually became known as the uh, as the Leviathan line. But basically what was happening is we were using Feeney lines and scientific angler lines and Portland lines. And the lines that they were making when they extruded them, the, the core of the line was supposed to be like 23 or 24 pound test. But when they extruded the vinyl onto the lines, it would break down the fibers. And a lot of them lines were breaking at the hinge or they were breaking at, you know, at 15 pound test. So, you'd have a 20-pound tippet on there fighting the fish, and the, and the fly line would break. So we built a fly line, built a system with a, with a, with a stretch piece of monofilament in the system that, that gives you like a rubber band in your system uh, to take the shock out of it. And uh, just everything that we got, we got chemically sharpened hooks. We got the fluorocarbon. We got 
monofilament that is so much better. We've got uh, different ways to, to rig flies. We we came up with tube flies instead of flies with hooks in them so that uh, the, the flies that I'm using now, are, uh, if you break a fish off, the fish never drags a fly away. When the fly float, floats to the surface, you get the fly back and the hook falls out of the fish's mouth. Little things that we developed to save the fish, but also to to make the uh, to make the fishing a lot better, and um, all of these little things that we added to the reels, um, we just didn't know. We used to think that we were palming the spool and putting eighteen pounds of pressure on a fish by bending that rod at the butt and doing the down and dirty and all that stuff. Well, the reality is that, you know, I started playing around with lefty with, with, uh, with a scale and come to find out with a fly rod, if, you, if a human being is holding it, you take a line and you hook it to a scale that's tied to a tree and you back up and you start bending that line and apply all, the, all that rod and apply all the pressure you can. It's really difficult to get that scale up to four pounds of pressure on a hook set or something. That's all that you're putting on the point of that hook. On the other hand, if you take that rod and straight pointing at the fish and you have a drag on a reel that is consistent and you can turn that reel up to five or six or seven or eight pounds and you can hold it with two fingers and just give it a straight line like you would with a, with a hand line and that hook's going in, it's never coming out. So I developed techniques using equipment First, we built better equipment. Then we built techniques to use that equipment that functioned better. When I started my sailfish schools, uh, when we first moved to Guatemala, it was 1993. When I started my sailfish schools down there, we fished for three years with Bud Gramer and Ron Hamlin, some of the great captains and on the intensity and the, the, the magic and the classic, uh, you know, the old, the really great folks. And after three years of doing that school, I'm talking about probably a few hundred fly fishermen. We finally had a day where we broke a world record and we caught 10 sailfish on fly on 20-pound tippet in one day. Today, there's not a boat in Guatemala that hasn't caught, hasn't caught more than 40 in a day on fly. We've actually had days down there where, where, where one, one boat with one angler caught 73 in a day. My tournaments, when we started the tournament, I do a, I do a tournament there at Casa Vieja Lodge in Guatemala the Jake Jordan Invitational. This year will be the 11th annual. When we started, we were, we were catching uh, about one out of every three bites. Over the last couple of years, we not only land about 90% of the bites on 20-pound tippet, but we give an extra we give a hundred points for getting the leader in. And then if you actually 
bring the fish up and take the hook out of his mouth. You get an extra 50 points each time you do that. And, and I can tell you that when we started, we were getting like maybe 50% of the flies back without breaking the tippet. The last few years, it's like 98, 99% through teams, mates have gotten so good at it that it's like, it's almost automatic. It's incredible. And I watched, you know, I watched this happen. And it, and it's not anything that I did. It's, it's a combination of the, of the captains, the mates particularly that do this stuff. They're the guys that do it every day. And we just kept trying new stuff and new stuff until we got better and better and better. And now it's, you know, I mean, we've caught a lot of sailfish on two pounds, 100 pounds sailfish. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, please remember to subscribe in the podcatcher of your choice so you don't miss part two of our interview with Jake. In part two, Jake and I take a deep dive into gear, tactics, and Jake's schools. And again, a shout out to this episode's sponsor, our friends at Norvice. Be sure to check them out at www.nor-vice.com and be sure to take a look at their Facebook page to stay up to date on all of their live events and all of their special events like March Madness. Tight lines, everybody.